The Reverend Adam Caldwell is back in the house this morning to finish his sermon series on how bad math sometimes equals good theology. Before he begins today, I hope you will indulge me in extended introduction, though I want to start by thanking Adam for being with us for this entire sermon series. Some of you have asked how, indeed. His words have been a blessing to all of us, and I will say personally, his commitment and the amount of work that he has put in is probably the only reason that I have survived Reverend Swan's sabbatical. So I thank Adam for the time he has spent with us. I do also want to address a little extra activity some of you may have noticed in the front lawn this morning. I am not sure if the police barricades are down yet, but some of you know that we did have a group of protesters here this morning. And it became clear to me that as I became aware of this this week, that God was at work in this as God is at work in all things. As I stood in the front yard with a group of Ledoux city officials earlier in the week, and the head official in the party looked at me and said, you know, Pastor Deb, what you need is a really big sign in the front yard. And I thought the Reverend David Kerr spent decades praying for a Ledoux city official to tell the church to put up a bigger sign. So David, I got you your sign. <laughs> in all seriousness though, there was a group protesting outside this morning because they say we have too many female pastors in our church and because they say we are too inclusive. They say that we love too many and we love too well. And to that I say, well done, good and faithful servants. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. I must tell you that Terry and I and Reverend Kim Shire and Reverend Katina Du have had such an outpouring of support from so many in the community. I got word last night that the National United Methodist Women Organization had put us on their nationwide prayer chain and were in prayer for us this weekend. And their prayers meant so very much to me. As you know, sometimes the power of prayer, how it lifts you up. And I felt their prayers. And I really believe that one of the reasons that women have been integrated so successfully and effectively into ministry in the Methodist Church is because the United Methodist Women, long before women were ordained, proved to the church that women could lead the church by leading the church even though they weren't ordained. <laughs> they broke the glass ceilings for us in advance and then in true UMW style, they stuck around to clean up the glass shards and make, the offices where, make sure the offices were painted for us when we arrived. We owe a debt of gratitude to all those who came before us and I cherish being a part of a church that values the voices of its girls and its women. I want to recognize in humility also that I know that there are voices protesting today, good friends, many of them, that the church could still yet be more inclusive, and I cherish those voices as well. In the midst of so many conflicting protests, it seems sometimes this year the church simply can't win. But I will tell you, Adam and I, in preparing for this sermon series, have been reading the parables of Jesus. And the parables of Jesus remind us that Jesus doesn't really talk very much about winning. He talks about connecting. We here at Salem are committed to connecting all people with God's extravagant love because Jesus tells us that is our job. Amen. Thank you. 
We are preaching today about the parables of multiplication, how bad math sometimes makes good ministry. Adam is going to preach here in a moment about the parable of the talent, the parable of the coin. And I have been talking today about the parable of the leaven. We planned these parables long ago, but it seemed especially fitting to me this morning, so I hope you will indulge me if I share the story with you. The parable of the leaven is one of Jesus' shortest parables. It's just 25 words long, depending on your translation, and it goes like this. The kingdom of heaven, Jesus tells us, is like yeast that a woman took and mixed in with three measures of flour until all of it was leavened. At first glance, we do think it is a parable of multiplication, but it is actually a parable about connection. You see, yeast is a single-celled organism. It does not make the bread rise by multiplying. Instead, it helps the bread to rise by taking two proteins, different proteins in the flour, glutenin and gliadin for the science nerds among us, and connecting them. And when they are connected, they become something new. They become something stronger. They become gluten, and gluten is what actually makes the bread rise. What the yeast does is form the connection between those proteins so that they can stretch and they can grow and they can become something new. With every burst of carbon dioxide that the yeast releases into a tiny air bubble, that gluten rises up and makes the bread grow by connecting the proteins. In this way, the dough rises not by multiplying, but by connecting. Connection, my friends, is the actual miracle. And I feel compelled to note today that in the parable of the leaven, it is in fact a woman that God uses to get the job done. Because here's the thing, the ingredients alone won't do it. If you just take the yeast and the flour and the salt and the water and you mix them together, you will have nothing but a big mess of goo. Some of us know that the hard way. It takes the woman's work to turn those ingredients into bread. It is the work of her hands, the work of her heart, the work she does in connection with her God that makes the bread dough rise. You see, it's all about connecting the yeast, the bread, the woman, us. It is all about connecting. The parable is not really a parable about baking bread. The parable is about building community where all are welcome and where there is enough for everyone. Our visitors this morning reminded me that it can be hard to get along when we have different points of view. But I want to remind each of you that we Methodists are the theological descendants of the great religious thinkers that found ways to end bloodshed between Protestants and Catholics in England centuries ago. We have always been the connectors. We are the builders of bridges between the old and the new, between one way of thinking and another. We are the people that bring people together. As John Wesley taught us, we are moving on toward perfection, but we are certainly not there yet. We are an imperfect people in an imperfect church, called to the nearly overwhelming task of loving one another as Christ loves us. We are called to try our best to do it a little better every day. We are called to try our best to do it a little better with every passing generation. And when I look at my kids and your kids and little Audrey Rose out there, I have great hope for our future together. You see, in the face of difference, we are called to love and not to hate. We are called to love with our words and with our actions. And I remind you, friends, that hate speech is not of God. Next week, we celebrate the 4th of July, 
and the freedom of speech that allows a hate group to stand in our front yard and yell profanities about Jesus and profanities about your clergy, if that is what they choose to do. And I want to express my deep gratitude to the men and the women who so bravely and honorably served to protect their right to free speech, our right to free speech, and the right we all have to worship freely in this great nation. Amen. I will tell you that after the 4th of July, I am invoking my privileges as senior pastor for the summer, and I have given the staff an extra bonus day off. We are taking a long weekend for the holiday. But when we come back, when we come back, we are coming back with sledgehammers in our hands, friends, because we are literally in this church breaking down walls. We are blowing out through construction the connector wing between the chapel and the sanctuary, breaking down walls literal and figuratively that divide us from one another. We are creating spaces for people to connect. We are creating a place to connect a new and growing generation to a beautiful and still growing religious tradition. We are making space, my friends. So I ask you to invite your friends and invite your neighbors. Keep coming back. We'll have a little dust along the way, but it'll all be worth it. Tell your friends that we are growing and that there is room for everyone. Tell them that like the woman with the leaven, we are doing God's work in the world. Assure them that no matter what they look like, no matter who they love, no matter where they are from, they are welcome here. Assure them that God's extravagant love is for all people and for each of us gathered here and proclaim the good news of the parables of Christ, that we are better when we are connected together. And with that, I will yield the pulpit (laughs) to Adam Caldwell and thank him once again for his willingness to be with us. So who's ready for lunch? Let's just just go, right? Again, it is a pleasure to be here with you this morning. I didn't realize when I said yes to Terry that I would do the month of June, um, I planned a four-week sermon series. There's five weeks in June. Uh, and, then, and then Deb said, you're going to have about eight minutes to talk. And I said, well, why even put an outline together for eight minutes? Um, no. It's been my pleasure. So we've been talking about the Trinity in the very first week, or back Memorial Day, my father-in-law, who's Marvin, uh, we, he has a cabin down in, in Farmington, and he said, oh, you're preaching the month of June. What are you preaching on? I said, oh, I'm going to preach on the Trinity. He said, what are you, stupid? <laughs> <laughs> Why in the world would you preach on the Trinity? Um, but I've had a lot of fun trying to, my, as best I can, pull that apart. All of those sermons are online if you want to go listen to those sermons. But today, I want to get real pragmatic with you. Can we do that? I want to get real practical. I want to um, challenge you a bit, if I can. First of all, I'm, I'm kind of geeking out a little bit because I'm fanboying right now uh, with BB. Because um, my parents are right there, and you don't know how many trips we did in the 90s in our Chevy Astro listening to BB and CC Winans and Anointed, and I mean, you name all the 90s. Got, Okay. 
where was I? Uh, all right. I want to talk to you about who you are, what you do, and why you do it. Okay? Who you are, what you do, and why you do it. I was an associate pastor here at Salem for five years, 2010 to 2015. Prior to that, um, I was in seminary at at Asbury Theological Seminary. Prior to that, I was a youth pastor for two years in St. Joseph, Missouri at Ashland United Methodist Church. Prior to that, I answered my call to ministry when I was 16 years old. So at the age of 16, I went to a youth conference in North Carolina and I saw a gentleman preaching, and I said, um, and he had some kind of uh, disability disorder, and I said, oh, jeez, God can use, I mean, God can surely use me. <laughs> and so when I was 16, I went back to Central Baptist, and I stood in the pulpit and said, I'm, I'm answering God's call to ministry. And my parents, God love them, after that was over, they said, that's great, why didn't you tell us first? Um, <laughs> From 16 years old, I've been setting my life up to be a senior pastor in a church someday. My dad, in his infinite wisdom, he'll appreciate that I said that, uh, said, son, I think you should get a business degree, because I grew up in a Baptist church, and Baptist churches are pretty autonomous. You know, the senior pastor is the CEO. The senior pastor takes care of the business of the church. So I got a business degree from Central Methodist University in my undergrad, um, and I got a minor in psychology. And my joke was always, get the business degree, run the church, get the psychology degree to manipulate the people to run the church, right? It's just a joke, y'all. Come on. Jeez. (laughs) And so that's what I did. Youth pastor, went off to seminary, got appointed here to St. Louis, Salem. When I got out of seminary, I truly felt like God was calling me back to St. Louis to start a halfway house. Felt like God was calling me to inner city St. Louis to make a difference. And then I got appointed to Salem and Ladue. (laughs) Not to mention the little Frontenac part of that too, you know. (laughs) And I, honestly, um, I wrestled with that. What do you do when you feel like God is leading you in one direction and then all of a sudden you get snapped in a different direction? And I think God and God's infinite purpose and will had everything, as much as I hate to say it, kind of lined out. Because uh, truth is, I would have been terrible at running a halfway house. Horrible. Wouldn't have known where to start. So I got to Salem, and one of the first things I did was I asked Terry if I could oversee missions. So I got to work on missions. Why did I do that? Well, I'm an associate pastor. I didn't didn't have a whole lot of money. You know, at that point, I had two kids, was married. But what I did have was this thing. I spoke every single Sunday in front of you. And I thought, if I could somehow influence you to make a difference in St. Louis, then I'd still be answering my call. So God helped me reorient my calling in my life 
in that way. Okay? Fast forward, 2015, United Methodist Church, we are appointed. As the old saying goes, you are called to be sent. You are called to be sent. And we were sent to Kansas City. If you want to hear the full fledging of that story and how that unraveled, I encourage you to go online. I spoke about it last week, so I, I know many of you weren't here, but go online and, and listen to that. Um, short, long story short, I preached four times and we moved back to St. Louis. It was, I, I refer to it as a, we were in Kansas City for a hot minute. <laughs> and when we got back, I was pretty shell-shocked. I remember, 16 years old. Went to college, got a business degree, got a minor in psychology so that I could go to seminary to become a senior pastor. Four weeks, that's how long I made it. Four weeks. So I got back to St. Louis and I started networking because trying to figure out next steps and thank the good Lord I had that business degree. I didn't have some like artsy (laughs) degree, right? And I found, I found Thrivent Financial and um, went, the, went the route of becoming a financial advisor. Now, I sit on the board of LifeWise. Anybody know what LifeWise is? Kingdom House. Yeah, so Kingdom House has changed their name to LifeWise. Uh, we'll get Salem to get on board with that at some point here, Deb. I appreciate that. A couple of years ago, um, I was doing work as a board member. I had a very tough job. I had to go play in the golf tournament, the the annual fundraiser. Very difficult work uh, as a board member. And Scott asked me to kind of emcee the night. So I was at the table, you know, shoving food in my mouth, going up, emceeing, coming back, shoving food in my mouth, getting introduced to people. And there was a wonderful woman at the table, and she asked me the question, Adam, what do you do? I said, well, I'm I'm a financial advisor. She said, oh, that's great. I said, yeah. And there was another woman at the table who actually goes to the connection. She's on the board here at St. Louis. And she interjects and she says, he's a financial advisor, but he was a pastor at Salem. She's like, and, and I could physically see like the, the wheels starting to crank. And she's like, so you were, you were a pastor and now you're a financial advisor. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Aren't you supposed to go the other way with that? It gets to a point. Who are you? Prior to that, every time somebody asked me who you are, what do you do, my answer was, I'm a pastor. I preach. I influence people. It was the identity that had been built up in me over this time period. And without even knowing it, I had equated what I do with who I was. It's not uncommon in in upper socioeconomic levels for the the first question to be, well, what's your name and what do you do? It's a common, common question. Sociologists tell us that as you go down the spectrum of socioeconomic, the what do you do question isn't that important. It's more, who are you related to? It's a family question. And think about it, it makes sense. If you're on the lower end of the socioeconomic scale, you may have a car that works, but it broke down and then you couldn't make it to work. And what happened when you couldn't make it to work? You got fired. And so you're job hopping. 
And what you do isn't as important, isn't as important as who you are related to. Now, I had the opportunity and the privilege to stand in front of people and tell them every single Sunday, you are a child of God. But I didn't believe it myself until I became a financial advisor. Because I had wrapped up who I was in what I did. And then I had to pivot. And so my calling now is no different than my calling was when I was a pastor. Why do I do what I do? I do what I do because I'm a child of God. And God calls me to transform this world. God calls me to clean up the room. God calls me to leave it better than I found it. This parable is a tough one. And this is Matthew 25. It's the parable of the coins. And I like to call it the parable of the coins. You may, be, you may know it as the parable of the talents. And the, the problem with the parable of the talents is that we often um, take money out of it. You might want to pick your toes up a little bit because I'm... <clears throat> I'm getting ready here. What are the four things that are impolite to talk about? Politics, religion, money. What? What? I missed it. It was. The reality of where we sit. How many of you have a Facebook page? Come on now. How often across your feed do you see comments about politics? How often across your feed do you see comments about sexuality, as Marvin would say it? I promise you, you said it once. It was hilarious. How, how often do you see comments come across about um, religion? There is one topic in our culture right now that we still don't talk about. Money. It's just uncomfortable for people. And I think we've lost translations in this particular parable because it's, it's easier to talk about somebody's talents. In reality, Jesus was talking about the coin, the change, the money. So he says this, the kingdom of heaven is like a man who is leaving on a trip. He called his servants and handed his possessions over to them. To one he gave five valuable coins, and to another he gave two, and to another he gave one. He gave to each servant according to that servant's ability. Then he left on his journey. After the man left, the servant who had five valuable coins took them and went to work doing business with them. Let me repeat that. After the man left, the servant who had five valuable coins took them and went to work doing business with them. He gained five more. In the same way, the one who had two valuable coins gained two more. But the servant who had received the one valuable coin dug a hole in the ground and buried his master's money. Now after a long time, the master of those servants returned and settled accounts with them. 
The one who had received five valuable coins came forward with five additional coins. Huzzah. He said, Master, you gave me five valuable coins. Look, I've gained five more. His master replied, Excellent. You are a good and faithful servant. You've been faithful over a little. I'll put you in charge of much. Come and celebrate with me. The second servant also came forward and said, Master, you gave me two valuable coins. Look, I've gained two more. His master replied, Well done. You are a good and faithful servant. You've been faithful over a little. I'll put you in charge of much. Come, celebrate with me. Now the one who had received one valuable coin came and said, Master, I knew that you are a hard man. You harvest grain where you haven't sown. You gather crops where you haven't spread seed. So I was afraid. And I hid my valuable coin in the ground. Here, you have what's yours. His master replied, you evil and lazy servant. It gives us a little different picture of Jesus than the sweet, cuddly, 12-ounce baby Jesus in Talladega Nights, right? Some of you, that just went, woo! (laughs) You knew that I harvest grain where I haven't sown and that I gather crops where I haven't spread seed. In that case, you should have turned my money over to the bankers so that when I returned, you could give me what belonged to me with interest. Therefore, take from him the valuable coin and give it to the one who has ten coins. Those who have much will receive more, and they will have more than they need. But as for those who don't have much, even the little bit they have will be taken away from them. Now take the worthless servant and throw him outside into the darkness. People there will be weeping and grinding their teeth. Word of God for the people of God, am I right? (laughs) That's a tough one. I like this parable for two reasons. One, I think it gets to the heart of something that we truly struggle with with our culture. One of my callings, and this is personal, is to do everything in my power as best as I can to level the economic, socioeconomic playing field here in St. Louis. And I'm inviting as many people along that journey with me who will come. So this parable gives me permission to do two things. One, it gives me permission to make money. Now, we don't talk about this in the church. This ain't something that you just, you just go after. But God says, use your skills and your talents and what I've gifted you with to leverage it. Second thing, leverage. Now, some of you have been given five coins. Some of you have been given two coins. And some of you have been given one coin. And what is the calling for all of us? Multiply it. Put it to work. Who are you? You are a child of the living God. Why do you do what you do? To make a difference and transform this world for God's kingdom. What do you do? I don't care. Do it for God. It doesn't matter what you do. You lean into those gifts that God has given you and you leverage them for God's kingdom. Who am I? 
I'm a child of the living God. Why do I do what I do? Because God has called me to transform St. Louis. What am I going to do? I'm going to be the best financial advisor anybody's ever seen. And I'm going to bring people along with me who have a passion for making a difference in the world to do it. Now just imagine with me, and this is hard, but can you imagine if we all bought into this process? I talk about compound interest on a daily basis. Einstein tells us it's the eighth wonder of the world. God is a multiplier. If each and every one of us bought into fulfilling the kingdom, imagine the impact that we would have. There's what, 200 people in this room? The multiplying effect would be astronomical. We, by the grace of God, could change the world. In the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Ghost. Amen.